So we're going to move right into, and it seems like a kind of a natural thing, you know, once someone passes away, what comes next is, is the burial. And I think there's more to it than meets the eye. And I'm interested and excited to talk about that a little bit. But I want to review just kind of where we came from. In case you weren't with us last week, we saw, as Jason mentioned, just this incredible event that took place the moment Jesus gave up his spirit, as the text says. Um, in fact, we saw lots of incredible things happen. Um, we're not going to go through them all, but um, the, the most amazing, the most astounding, the most unbelievable thing was that the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Okay, go back and listen online if you want to know a little bit more some of the details. Um, I read from a book called The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. I encourage you to pick it up if you've got little kids. It's a great tool and resource in helping explain the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so I read some of that last week, and it showed us how God, through Jesus on the cross, tore the curtain and smashed the barrier that stood between sinful people and a completely holy God. That's how it was accomplished by Christ on the cross. And so what happens in our text today is what comes next. And just to put this out there, this the text in Matthew 50, 27, 57 through 66, this, this is not dripping with theological implications like last week's was. Um, I don't know of any pastor who's excited you know, to preach through the, the burial of Jesus, the text on this. And yet, I think there's a lot here. Now, I had intended to lump this text together with 28, some of the first half of 28 with the resurrection. But as I was studying it more, there's a lot here that I wanted to point out and for us to see together. And so I think that's how it goes when you start reading God's <laughs> word. You start realizing, I don't know that much. <laughs> There's more here than I need to know. And so we're going to read some of it together. So turn, if you're not already there, to Matthew 27, 57 through 66. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his new tomb, own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Soldiers, Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Let's pray. Lord, use uh, your word this morning in our hearts. God, we are we are desperately in need of your direction and guidance. Thinking back all the way to the Old Testament, the Israelites were in desperate need of your guidance. They had it, and they still grumbled. And Lord, I think of my own heart, and I have your word, I have your guidance, and yet how often I grumble as well. 
Change our hearts as Jason prayed, Lord. Change our hearts. Do that work in us because we cannot do it in our own, on our own. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've discussed this before, but I want to draw our minds back to the incredible providence of God in this scene. Now, when we were doing Awana a couple, about a year ago, Jason was leading the kids through different attributes of God. And so we looked at, um, you know, all kinds of things, Om- omniscience, uh, you know, unchangeable, unchanging. And one of the things that, that he taught us was the sovereignty of God. The power of God to do all of his holy will. Right? In fact, in uh, James and Amanda's Sunday school class, uh, they've got this on the wall in there too. And we know this. Right? We read texts of scripture and we can say, oh yeah, there it is. There's God's design in this. And I want to encourage us this morning and remind us, guys, he's still doing that now. That same providence that was there in the Old Testament is still working now because God is the same God. And so as, as we talk this morning, I'm going to point out through this story the different times that God's faithfulness is seen. And I just, I hope you don't get tired of it. It's not going to be a ton, but I, I just want to kind of alert you to that. This, that's coming. Now, <clears throat> when we think of supernatural events. We think of things that happen that kind of go against nature. Maybe not against nature, but it's, they kind of break the laws of nature, right? When, when that happens, human beings stand up and take notice, right? I just think of a couple examples here from the Old Testament. Think of the ten plagues on Egypt. When, when there's frogs everywhere, you can't help but notice. The gnats have been bad this year, right? And yet, I don't think that's even a, a portion of what the Israelites or the, the Egyptians endured. It just covered everything, right? I, I've talked with people that have lost bunches of chickens from the gnats this year. It happens. There were tons of livestock being killed in Egypt because of the gnats. When things like that happen and things like manna falling from heaven in the wilderness for 40 years every day, they would go out and collect manna in the morning. 40 years. Stuff like that happens and you, you take notice. Axe heads that you split axe, split wood with floating down the river, that's not normal. You, we take notice when Jericho's walls come falling down just from people yelling, screaming, and making noise. That just doesn't happen. This was a fortified city. That's not supposed to be that way. Then you've got guys, a guy in the New Testament who starts walking on water, speaking to nature, and it changing on his command, turning water into wine at weddings, raising the dead back to life. These are things that even though we are finite in nature as human beings we're, we stop what we're doing and we're like whoa something incredible just happened okay when god does stuff like that he gets our attention in this text it's not like that there, there's no incredible miraculous event that unfolds where we just have to stop in our tracks and say god i see you're doing something it's more subtle than that 
it's not as outwardly spectacular here, but there's still the evidence of the sovereignty and providence of God that we need to pay attention to. Now, how many of you guys like suspense movies? I'm not talking about scary movies that are full of suspense. I'm just talking about suspense movies. I I like this. Um, I don't know if Matlock falls in. That's not a movie. It's a TV show. I don't know if Matlock falls into this, but I I enjoy this show, Matlock. That's how one of the ways Nikki and I met, actually, was watching Matlock. So it's special to us. Um, but it's this, it's this whole notion of, like, you don't, as the viewer, you don't get all the information right away. Right? You only see bits and pieces. How many of you guys have seen Ocean's Eleven? It's been a while since it's come out. That's one of those movies where you don't understand what's going on until, like, the very last few minutes. And then all of a sudden the director of the movie gives you all of the information you need and then you can start, you know, drawing the line between these different events. I I, I like suspense movies because they keep you guessing. The thing is, as a viewer, you don't know the outcome until the very end. Like the director's there, he's filming the shots, he knows what's coming, he has it all in mind, the whole picture before the movie even starts. But as the viewer, we don't see that. Now, I, I recognize that our lives are far different than a movie script. That's a, that's a good thing, I think. But yet, there's something that I realize more and more the older that I get, and it's this. God's providence is working in and through the details and circumstances of everyday people, often over long periods of time, to accomplish His will. Ordinary, everyday people sometimes over long periods of time, to accomplish his will. We've heard, hopefully you've heard testimony of of parents who have prayed for their children to receive Christ for years, or a spouse, or another loved family member. And they've prayed for years for this to happen. And then God in his patience and mercy saves that individual. That's an incredible thing. That's evidence how over long periods of time sometimes, God's will is enacted in our world. But it's so far from us. The mind of God is so much higher than ours that sometimes we can't see it. And so we begin to doubt. We begin to lose hope and doubt his plan. But the thing is, that that rather insignificant event that happened in my life five years ago or your life 15 years ago, it seemed like not a big deal at the time, now suddenly makes sense because of some new information that God has put in our lives. Or maybe it wasn't even an insignificant event. Maybe it was a huge milestone event that broke you or that made you doubt. Let me put it this way. The trial that God brought you through years ago months ago, or is bringing you through currently, is accomplishing a greater purpose in your life that you often times can't see until later on. It doesn't mean it isn't coming, but it might mean that you just can't quite see it yet. And I think that's what's happening in our text today. If you look, we're given some information about Joseph, and we'll talk about him in just a minute, but I want to point out something that would have made a great Mother's Day text. We weren't there at this point, but notice who is left at the cross when Jesus dies. Three ladies, 
John is there. There's evidence in other Gospels. Three ladies, Mary, Mary, and, and uh, Salome. I think it's how you pronounce her name. Um, these were three moms sitting at the cross. Think about that. When Jesus' most devoted followers, for the most part, hit the road, look who was left. Three ladies. Strong, godly lovers of Jesus. Praise God for these women. They are an example of um, perseverance to us. We can see throughout history, uh, in, the, in the Bible and in just in, in our uh, worldly history, we can see the tenacity, devotion, and faithfulness of godly women. And, and you know, it's evidence here too. When we look ahead, we see it again. Maybe you know the story. Who were the first people to see Jesus alive? Two ladies. Who were the first people to then go and share the good news that Jesus was alive? Two ladies. Jesus' mom, James and Joseph's mom, and James and John's mom were all there when Jesus died. And when Jesus was laid in the tomb, as we see here in our text, at least two of the three of them were there. They hung in there and believed when most others didn't. Thank God for devoted and dedicated women who love the Lord. After all those things happened, after Jesus died, as we've said, his body still hung on the cross. We know that Joseph of Arimathea took him and laid him in his own tomb, but there's more to see here. There's We're going to kind of cross-reference some things, so keep your finger maybe in Matthew 27 and turn to John chapter 19. Here we see God's providence at work as he weaves together the religious hypocrisy of the Jews along with the indifference of Pilate all in order to fulfill prophecy. So John chapter 19, verse 31. This is John's account of the death and burial of Christ, all the way through 42. So John chapter 19, verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, 
they laid Jesus there. So we see, hopefully, our understanding of the burial of Jesus is kind of rounding into shape a little bit more with seeing what John has to say. Uh, the, the religious hypocrites were concerned that these people that were crucified might actually profane the Sabbath the next day if they were still on the crosses at that point. Now, they had a good reason to be kind of concerned about that to a degree. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23 said that the body of an executed criminal could not be left hanging on a tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day for he who is hanged is his is cursed by God so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord, your God has given you as an inheritance. So these religious leaders were being very cautious not to defile the Sabbath by having these men up on the crosses. So what do they do? Well, they went to Pilate, they bugged Pilate again, and they asked him if they could kind of speed up the process here. Um, it's sadly ironic that these guys cared so much about the Sabbath and, you know, not defiling the Sabbath. And yet the very uh, trial and examination and torture of Jesus took place on what day? The Passover. So they care, they didn't care so much about the Passover, but they were really respectful of the Sabbath. They did not want ceremonial defilement. And with that in mind, their hypocrisy is exposed. They cared about the Sabbath, but not so much about the Passover because it was all about what they wanted to happen. And when it was convenient for them, they broke it. This, at its core, brothers and sisters, is a heart problem. It's one that Jesus has already addressed when he pointed out, remember a couple chapters ago when he started talking to them and he had some really strong words and he said, you would rather clean the outside of the cup and just not even care about the filth on the inside. Talked about whitewashed tombs and dead bones inside. You remember that passage. And here's, I think, something that we can draw from all of that. <clears throat> it's this. It's always easier to hide the truth from others and ignore the reality of our own sin that's inside than to confess it and turn away from ungodliness. It's always easier to put a mask on and suppress the truth of who we really are than to release it and give it over to the Lord. And yet every one of us sitting here probably recognizes that's what we should do, but it's not always that easy. And yet this, I believe is one of the core things that separates a follower of Jesus from a pretender. You see what I'm saying? Someone who acknowledges their sin and repents of it is fruit of a believer. Someone who buries their sin and denies it is fruit of a pretender. So Pilate agrees to have the Roman soldiers speed up the process. And we're not going to go into great detail here, but they would use a big hammer and they would go up and they would break people's legs on the cross. And this would speed up the process because when their legs were broken, they couldn't pull up on those nails to get another breath. And so they suffocated to death faster. That's how it happened. Now, they were surprised when they got to Jesus and he was already dead. They broke the legs of the other two. And so the, the Roman soldier uh, pierced him in the side and blood and water came out. And this was 
um, evidence that he had been dead for a while. If Jesus had still been alive, they would have broken his legs too, though. And yet, John 19, as we just read, verse 36, points out the prophecy that none of his legs would be broken, or none of his bones would be broken. That comes from Psalm chapter 34, verse 20. These things happened this way to assure that none of his bones would be broken. This was fulfillment of prophecy. Now, I want to kind of self-correct and amend a statement I made last week. Um, if you were here, you probably heard me make this statement. When his body was on the, was broken on the cross, the rocks were buried. I'm sorry. Let me start over. When his body was broken on the cross, the rocks were broken in the ground. Right? And I talked about how when the veil was torn in the, in the temple, his body was torn on the cross. Um, when I, when I phrased it that way, I had the words of Jesus in mind at the Last Supper, where he breaks the bread and he gives it to the disciples. And, uh, as I was reading those verses again, um, I, I noticed that Jesus doesn't say the word broken. Um, he says given. He, he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body given for you, or given to you. Um, I, that's an important distinction to make because of this prophecy that we're referring to here. Now, in the King James, I think it actually does use the word broken. There's um, in the you know, theological world, there's a phrase called textual variant. And that's just kind of means there's sort of a disagreement about what words should be used um, in interpreting and, and, you know, um, a specific word. And so in this text, there's a textual variant. Um, So it's helpful to do extra research on this. Uh, His body, this is what it comes down to, though. Uh, His body being broken doesn't necessarily mean his bones were. Um, his flesh was certainly broken when the whip broke his skin. Um, so that phrase could be open, uh, but I, I wanted to make sure and correct myself in case anybody heard that and was now confused. Okay. Um, any way you look at it, though, the reality is that Jesus gave himself up for us physically, not just emotionally, not just spiritually. I mean, literally, he, he had skin in the game. If you know what I mean. Okay. Uh, this discussion shouldn't detract from our main point. So I want to be clear that Jesus' body was broken, but his bones were not. And I don't think there's a disagreement in that understanding. Okay. So not only were his bones going to remain intact, but the Bible says that he was to be pierced. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 was going to be fulfilled. And that says, when they look on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Jesus had to be pierced. The Roman soldier took that spear and thrust it into his side, into the heart of a person to ensure death. That was, Roman soldiers were skilled at pain. They were skilled at battle. Some of them, this group would have been skilled at torture. They would have known when someone was alive or dead. So the Roman soldier really had no reason to do this. They'd already recognized that Jesus had died. That's why they didn't break his legs. And yet, 
for some strange reason, he pokes him in the side. Well, it wasn't a strange reason. This Roman soldier unwittingly fulfilled Zechariah's prophecy hundreds of years before. Out of God's providential design. This tells us something, brothers and sisters. It's this. God's hand moved in the details of circumstances, timing, and the life of just this regular Roman soldier to ensure that what he had previously said through the prophets would be fulfilled. The ordinary life and happenings of this random soldier God used to fulfill prophecy. Is there any doubt, therefore, that he would care for any of his children? If God can design hundreds of years to fulfill prophecy, why do we doubt that he might care for us? It's silly in that scope to doubt it, and yet we do. I hope this morning that we're encouraged to keep trusting. So let's move to Joseph. We know he's a rich guy. If you go kind of flip back to Matthew, we know that um, it says that he's a rich man from Arimathea and that he took Jesus and put him in his own tomb, tomb he had bought for himself, cut out of rock. I want us to note some things about him. He's a wealthy guy, we just talked about. Luke 23 says that he was a good and righteous man. John 19 said that he was a follower of Jesus. Mark 15 says that he was a part of the Jewish council, which we believe to be the Sanhedrin. Mark 15 and John 19 say that he was afraid. And John 19 also says that he had a friend who was also afraid. So the question is, why was he afraid? Why was Joseph of Arimathea afraid? So if he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, he would automatically, it would automatically be assumed that he would be opposed to Jesus. Is assumed. There's no way that it could be anything else. And yet Luke tells us that Joseph didn't agree with them. Says that he didn't agree with their methods and their strategy and He was a righteous man. So to be on Jesus' side when it's assumed that you would not, that you would hate him, it would mean that he'd be kicked out of the Jewish Sanhedrin and probably ostracized by the Jewish leaders in general. Joseph was also afraid to be known as a follower of Jesus because he probably would have just been kicked out of the Jewish synagogue as a whole. To be on Jesus' side at this point in history was not a pleasant thing. I think we understand that because 11 of the 12, well, 10 of the 11 disciples left. Where were they? They weren't identifying with Jesus. We know what happened with Peter when he was approached about being a follower of Jesus. So Joseph was afraid. If he got kicked out of the Jewish synagogue, that basically meant he was cut off from Jewish life. That was a huge part of Jewish culture. So there was a lot at stake for Joseph to be known as a follower of Jesus. John also mentions that a friend of Joseph was there and that his friend was afraid. This guy was Nicodemus. We haven't talked a lot about Nicodemus. John's gospel talks more about him. But it says, remember, that Jesus, I'm sorry, Nicodemus came to Jesus at a particular time of day. Anybody remember? At night under the cover of darkness, because he didn't want to be seen talking to Jesus. He was afraid. He was afraid of what the other Jewish leaders would think 
and what they might do to him if they saw him talking to Jesus. So, we have two secret disciples of Jesus who are now boldly identifying with him by publicly asking for his body when all the other disciples, except for John, were in hiding. What a turn of events here. The guys that said, Jesus, I'm with you to the end, even to death, are now gone. And the guys who were secretly following Jesus are now coming to the forefront and identifying with him. Also, I'll point out that these two guys were not so concerned about the ceremonial laws like the other, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. These guys weren't so concerned about them that they, they risked touching a dead body defilement by touching a dead body. Numbers 19 says they're not to do that. So what would cause these guys to come out of the shadows, boldly proclaim their allegiance to Jesus and following him and risk ceremonial defilement when no one else would? I think there's a big difference here that we need to pay attention to. And it's this, the religious leaders cared more about appearances these guys, Joseph and Nicodemus, cared more about the Savior. They saw him for who he was and believed, even when it wasn't popular with the people in their circle. They risked their way of life to identify with Jesus. And so that forces us, I think, to ask this question of ourselves. Is that how I follow him? Am I willing to give up my circle of friends to do, to follow Jesus and do what he's called me to do? Am I willing to give up comfort in this life? Security to follow Jesus? These guys risked it. Am I willing to do that or am I more content to sit on the sidelines, dip my toe in Christianity when it's convenient or beneficial to me, but really just kind of remain dead inside. Because there's really only two options, right? There's no fence in Jesus' metaphors. There's the narrow path and the wide path. There's no middle ground. So which one are we walking? How Do we follow Jesus like these guys? You know, when we do, with this like almost reckless abandon, like, I don't care if I lose all of this. I'm still going to follow Jesus. When we follow him like that, we don't know what's coming. That, that's the hard part, isn't it? We don't know what our family is going to say. We don't know what our friends are going to do, what our boss might say, if our job's secure or not. We don't know those answers. But I'll tell you what, we'll never regret it. I want to point out something in John's account that I thought was interesting. When Joseph and Nicodemus went to bury Jesus, they took spices and ointments and stuff. How much did they take? 70, 75 pounds? That's a lot of oil and ointment and perfumes and things like that. Do you, okay, what's the point? Who cares how much stuff they're bringing with them? All right. These guys loved Jesus. But I don't think they understood or believed that he was going to rise again in three days. Why would they bring almost a hundred pounds of this stuff if they thought he was going to be rising again in a couple days? Right? The point of this was to prepare the body ceremonially so that it didn't stink. 
these once timid followers of Jesus did what they did because they had love and respect for Jesus and wanted to do something, I think, as kind of this final act of showing their loyalty to him. Or Joseph went boldly and asked for the body of Jesus. Who did he ask? Pilate. That's the guy who could release his body. He went to Pilate and asked. Nicodemus was there. They had been secret about their friendship and allegiance to Jesus before, but not anymore. Now I want us, here's that point where I'm going to point out God's providence in all of this. Joseph went to Pilate at just the right time to ask for his body. If he had gone later in the day, he wouldn't have had time to get Jesus buried before the end of the day and Sabbath began, before the start of the Sabbath. Joseph was also the right man because he was a member of what group? The Sanhedrin. So Pilate probably would just grant his request without really even questioning why. This story, this part of the story is not by chance at all. This is the handiwork of a completely, supremely sovereign God. The timing of all of this forces us to see that. And yet, the chief priests are still nervous, aren't they? The religious leaders are still nervous about what might happen. Look back at Matthew 27, verse 62 to 66 says that they go to Pilate and they're concerned that the followers of Jesus are going to come and take his body and do something with it so that it looked like he had risen from the dead. They said, they said that and it's just, it's sort of funny, but not really funny um, because they didn't really have to be concerned about this, did they? Where were Jesus' closest friends? In hiding. They weren't concocting this crazy plan to go steal Jesus' body. They were scared. They were afraid for their lives. They didn't, the Jewish leaders didn't need to be afraid of this. Even after Jesus was gone, they were trying to drag his name through the mud and discredit him. They, they said that imposter, they, they called, they talked about his death on the cross being a fraud or all the things that he claimed being a fraud. The guy is gone and they're still trying to get people to not follow him. It's funny to me. It was almost, it was almost as if they believed Jesus more than his disciples did. That's hard to believe. I think this also shows, though, that they understood the correlations that Jesus was making when Jesus said, and they quoted him, 63, an imposter, they said, while he was still alive after three days, I will rise. Right? That's when Jesus was talking about the temple. I'm going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. They got it. These religious leaders actually understood what Jesus was getting at here. It's, it's, it's interesting that the guys who he was talked plainly to, right? The disciples would come and say, Jesus, I don't understand that. Just tell us what it means. And he would tell them, didn't get it. And the guys who they, Jesus talked about in code with parables and metaphors, they seemed to get it. <laughs> they knew he was talking about himself. They mocked him on the cross in verse 40 about it. Said, oh, he's going to rise again in three days. Let's see if he really does it. The truth was right there in front of them, but their pride and foolishness caused them to miss it. And so here's the danger that I want to caution us for today. It's this. Your pride 
will keep you from Jesus. If you remain in your pride, you will be far away from Jesus. It's sad, really, but it's a reality that sticks out in our story today. These guys were right there on the forefront. They saw his miracles, and yet their hearts were hardened. My encouragement would be that today is the day of salvation. Don't delay in trusting Christ. Lay down your pride. Follow him. So Pilate agrees to their request um, because he recognizes that if this deception could be pulled off, that the king of the Jews had conquered death and was therefore invincible, then he could his spot on the throne could be in danger. Um, he would have a serious rebellion on his hands. So he says, take a guard and go to the tomb and make it secure. Uh, a Roman guard then is stationed and an official seal. They seal the tomb. Um, this was probably either made of clay or wax and it had an emblem of Rome impressed into it. This was the seal that they put on the rock, the tomb. To break that seal is to defy Rome. Nobody was going to do that, especially not a Roman soldier. Again, we see God's hand at work here, but this time it's even through his enemies. They had placed the guard and set the seal to prevent a hoax from happening, but God had done it as an added factor in proving there was no hoax and the resurrection really actually did take place. You see how that goes? No one would break that seal, but God did. We serve a sovereign God who orchestrates all the details and circumstances of many lives, including those of his enemies, to achieve his will, to the praise of his own glory that we talked about last week. That concept is what backs up and speaks so loudly from Romans 8.28. You guys know that verse. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Sometimes we use that verse out of context and arbitrarily, but here we understand it better because of what we see in Scripture. God is using all of these events throughout this story of Jesus' burial to point to his sovereignty, to his plan, to his purpose. And the reality is that there are some of us today here that know the struggle of trusting God's plan all too well. We know that it's difficult and you might be out there and you might be fighting to believe. You see the pain, uh, you see the problem, but you can't see the provision of God yet. Let me encourage you in this through the story of Jesus' burial this morning, that even when you don't understand the things that are happening to you or maybe to a loved one, even though you don't understand why you're going through those things, you can rest with certainty knowing that God knows what he's doing and that he will work it out in both his and your best interest for the praise of his glory. Look back at what we saw today. We saw the Roman soldier fulfilling prophecy. We see Joseph and Nicodemus coming out boldly we see Pilate and the religious leaders adding actually evidence to the truth that Jesus really did raise from the dead. All of these things God is using together, weaving together that kind of golden strand throughout history for his purpose 
and His time so that His will is complete and He alone is glorified. This, If you look back through Old Testament um, history and all of the little things, every little thing was to remind them that He alone is in charge, not them, that He alone is their provider, not themselves, and that He will take care of them. Guys, His message for us is the same. His love for us is the same today. No matter what is going on in your life, I won't tell you that it's all going to be good in the end, but you can know that God is using it to form you more into the image of Christ. Because if you read after those te- that text in Romans eight twenty eight, the purpose of all of that, the purpose of, of God's will in your life is to conform you more and more to the image of Christ. Not so that you get whatever you want, or that your life is easy, but so that you're conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And we know it's oftentimes in the moments of pain and trial that we see Jesus more clearly and we hold to him more tightly. And in those moments, be reminded, maybe today it's for you, be reminded God's hand may seem slow to us, but his timing is far superior to ours. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this seemingly insignificant passage that reminds us of your provision in our lives. God, I I know I, I struggle at times to understand why you're doing what you're doing, why things are happening in my life or life of my loved ones or in our community. And it's, it would be easy for me to doubt. It's easy for us to do that. We're kind of predisposed towards that anyway, Lord. And so we need fresh reminders like this, Lord, of your providence. Thank you that we can see that thread coming all the way through all of these prophecies, hundreds of years in the making, finding their fulfillment in Jesus so that we can be reassured that he was, he is who he said he is and that we can trust him because of that. And so, Lord, as we probably so often need to pray, Lord, we believe, but we need your help in our unbelief. So, Lord, if that's where we are today, God, I pray that you would be moving in not only the events in our lives, but also in our hearts, Father. We need you to do something new in us so that we can see you more clearly, God, because our, our own sin is, it's all right there in front of us. The problems of this life abound. They're, they're all swarming us so often. And yet, Lord, we need you to calm us and show us of your providence in our lives. Thank you for your hand of mercy. And we pray that we would see it more clearly because of this text today. In Christ's name, amen.